Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were in Israel and we went on our first day excursion outside the city of Jerusalem where we've been staying. You'll remember we went about 35 minutes south, uh, south of Jerusalem that is, to a place called Hebron. And Hebron, as we learned, is the site of the Tomb of the Patriarchs. That's where Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebecca, and then also Jacob and Leah are buried. And we learned how Abraham originally bought the cave from a man named Ephron because he wanted a proper burial place for Sarah. And there's actually a part of the story of in that passage in Genesis 23, I believe, and I didn't actually mention it last time, so I'm going to mention it here because it's really crucial. You see, some Jews actually believe that Abraham was essentially being tricked by the Hittites, the people he, you know, bought the cave from, Ephron the Hittite. The story in Genesis 23 says that Abraham went to the city gates uh, of the city, right, and he wanted to get a burial cave, and the Hittites say, if you remember, take whatever you want, anything is yours, no one's going to refuse you. Okay, I want to interject here that at this point, many people probably know of Abraham. Uh, he's probably respected throughout the lands. You have to keep in mind he's traveled all over at this point. He's been a wanderer his entire life. He stood in front of kings. Uh, we know this because in two places in, in the Bible, in the Torah, he tried to trick kings uh, that Sarah was a sister, not his wife, in order to gain favor with them and to essentially uh, keep his life. Uh, we also know he had a son at a very old age, so that's significant. People probably knew of that. And he was also well off. So when you think about it, there's no way that these people, like the Hittites, didn't know of Abraham. So anyways, put that in context. Now, we know that Abraham doesn't just want to put Sarah in a cave. He actually wants to purchase a cave. And he specifically wants Ephron's cave of Machpelah, as it's called. And Ephra, uh, or Ephron just says, Abraham, go ahead and, and bury your dead. I don't care. He, he just insists that he should take it, just as all the other, Hitt other Hittites are looking on. But what happens? Well, Abraham refuses to just take it. Abraham... Well, he kind of probably knows he's a target uh, simply because of what he's done in his life, right? So he knows that he could be taken advantage of because people know of him and know what he's done. So if you remember, Abraham then asks for the price of the field. And he says, you know, how much money is it, man? And Ephron says, it's 400 shekels. Okay, this is the problem when we don't understand currency, when we don't understand maybe uh, some of the culture of that time period. Because 400 shekels to us, eh, we know, I mean... What are you going to convert it to? Dollars? I feel like it's very easy for us to just convert things to dollars right off the bat, right? So we think $400, eh, that's not that much money. No, 400 shekels. Let me just tell you, that would have been a lot of money. And we have to put that in the context of currency and, and how much that would have been worth in that time and not just maybe try to do some uh, weird equality symbol thing in our brain. We have to understand how much money that was. It was a lot of money. 400 shekels for a cave? I got to tell you, that's an outrageous price to pay. My guess, Ephron was probably just throwing out some crazy high number, thinking Abraham wouldn't take the bait. But what happens? Abraham simply agrees to pay it. Remember that? Well, well, why? Well, my speculation is that Abraham wanted to make sure that his wife was buried in a place where he could also be buried and where generations after could be buried. You know, if he didn't have claim to it, if he didn't have the actual monetary proof that he had bought it, Ephron or Ephron's family later after him, 
could come along to Abraham or maybe Abraham's later descendants and say, you know, it, it doesn't actually belong to you. You know, Ephron, he was just joking around. He was trying to be nice in front of all his people, right? Uh, no, it was just a gesture. And Abraham knew that was a possibility. And so he wanted to prevent that in, in doing so. He ended up paying an amount that he knew was too high. So it's almost like Abraham got purposely ripped off in order to keep this cave safe for him and his family. And that did work indeed. It's the literal tomb of the patriarchs. The patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel are buried there. So I just think that's a really cool part of the story of the tomb of the patriarchs. I didn't mention it the last time, but you know, most people fail to recognize that when reading the story. They see the interaction between Ephraim and Abraham and the exchange of money there in the city gates. And, and they just think that's normal. They say city gates, okay, cool. Uh, money is being exchanged. We have these people. Maybe it's almost like what we have in America where we make deals with each other and we exchange money. But no, that's really not. You see, Ephron would have been in the city gates because of the fact that that's where business deals happened. He wanted to try to cheat Abraham uh, and give him too high of a price. Then they exchanged money. And there was a reason that all happened. So we see the difference in culture really informs our understanding of this passage. And we also were able to stand at that very place where it happened. So hopefully all of that is able to come together and you'll be able to look at the Bible in new ways as we explore both the places and the history and culture here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Also at that cave and what we got to see last week, which was really cool, we know that Abraham knew exactly what he wanted in terms of choosing that cave because he probably went to a lookout point and he surveyed the land. And we saw that we were there too, or we were at a potential spot rather. We looked at how Abraham most likely looked out over the land of Hebron and he would have seen that cave that Ephron owned. And we know that when we look down from that spot, well, today we see the towering structure that King Herod built, but we know that it would have looked a little bit different in the time of Abraham. And that's just because obviously, you know, the structures are different. Uh, he probably would have been looking at maybe some, some little houses. Um, he would have seen just the plain old cave, right? So that's the difference there. Now, going inside the tomb, that was also quite an experience. We learned about how people confirmed that the cave was below the structure that Herod built because this girl, Mikkel Arbel, she went underneath the cave in 1968, and then she got to take pictures. Like I said in our last tour, I absolutely love that story. There is such bravery. The Jewish people from young to old will go to any extent to protect their land of Israel, given to them by God. They'll put themselves in potential danger like Mikkel did. I, I mean, she was going under the cave. No one had ever been under there before, I, at least, you know, in, in recent years. And that was simply because she wanted to discover more about her land. She wanted to help the people understand it. And the Jews will do anything to do that or to protect it. The love that the Jews have for their land, the chosen land that God gave to them, is inspirational. You know, we haven't had much of a chance to talk about the Israeli war for independence yet. But uh, well, when we get there... I just can't wait because we're going to get to talk about some modern day miracles and hear about some of the bravest people that you could possibly come by. Well, now that we've gotten to officially close our Hebron tour, our next stop is going to be Shiloh. Now, this place is probably up there as one of my top three favorite places in all of Israel. Tell me if you think this sounds cool. It's the place where the tabernacle dwelt for 369 years. It's the place where Hannah prayed for her son, Samuel, and it's the place where that, you know, son, Samuel, grew up as a mighty prophet of the Lord. And that, my fellow virtual voyagers, is not even the all of it. You can see why I think this is a, such a, a special site. So let's go ahead and head on up due north. It's about 40 minutes from here from Jerusalem at our hospital. So as we drive, I want to introduce you to a few things. So 
first, let's talk about the tabernacle. At this point, all of us here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM have heard of the temple. And see, in fact, we actually got to go up on the Temple Mount and see where that temple might have stood. I mean, it did stand somewhere up there on the Temple Mount, but we don't know the exact location of the temple as it would have sat in the Temple Mount. We know it's in that general area. So now I want you to think about this. Before the temple, there was another place where God's presence dwelt, and that was the tabernacle. And inside this structure sat the Ark of the Covenant, among other things. This place was where God dwelt among his people. So it was basically the movable temple before the temple was built. And if you remember, King David asked God if he could make him a permanent resting place. Right? Remember this story? King David just didn't think it was right that God's presence was simply moving around with the Israelites. And, you know, I did say that the tabernacle was in Shiloh for 369 years just a minute ago, but that was the longest time it ever spent in one place. For the most part, it was all over. It was running around with the Israelites. Um, ultimately, the Bible details that God said David could not build the temple because he had too much blood on his hands. But God did say that his son could do it. So that's how Solomon, David's son, came to build the temple. Okay, but back here, the tabernacle. It was so important. If we think about the significance of the temple and how God's presence dwelt there inside the Holy of Holies, inside the temple, well, that's kind of how the tabernacle worked too. It was just a movable structure. So the Israelites could take it with them as they wandered throughout. The Bible actually details a bit about the tabernacle and how it came to be in Exodus, part of the Torah. So Exodus also talks a lot about uh, Israel's wanderings in the desert. If you remember, remember they were exiled and they wandered around the desert for a while. So let's go ahead and jump to the part where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And then God gives him instructions on a new resting place for him at that time. And this new resting place is what will become the tabernacle. So in Exodus 25, God says that, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then God goes on to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, the specifications for that. He talks about the table that the bread should go on. He instructs Moses on how to build the lampstand. The instructions for the construction of the tabernacle take up a whole chapter in Exodus. It's very detailed. But God wanted to have a resting place on earth among his people. And it's really cool because we're going to go to this place, Shiloh, where that tabernacle dwelt and where God rested among his people. Okay, so when I first heard about this idea of a resting place for God, I was confused. Okay, so, I mean, God created earth, right? We believe that. So his resting place is on earth, right? So... The answer to that is kind of twofold. It's, it's yes and no. It's yes in the sense that the earth is God's and was created so God could rest and humans could enjoy the rest of God. However, with the fall of man, that was destroyed. So God's still present here with us on earth, but it's just not the same with the fall of man. So ultimately, God wanted a place to rest among his chosen people, and the tabernacle was there to serve that purpose. The tabernacle is also called the tent of meeting in the Bible. And it was really just that. It was, it was a tent. It was a portable structure that the Israelites could take with them when they moved. And they, they did that a lot. Prior to having the promised land, they were always on the move. Do you remember the story in the Bible where God sent spies to see the promised land? But all of the spies were afraid. And they came back and said, we can't do this. We can't conquer the prom promised land because the people look formidable. Albeit God had already said that he was going to give it to them. 
except that there were two brave spies, Joshua and Caleb, and they said that the Israelites should conquer the land. Funny story, I have seven younger siblings, and all of my siblings, uh, and me, including me, are all named after, we all have Hebrew names, and so two of my siblings are Joshua, Yehoshua in Hebrew, and then Caleb, Caleb. So, kind of funny there. Anyways, so after a few disastrous interchanges uh, between the various spies and the Israelites, they end up in this seven-year conquest of the Promised Land, and that Promised Land is now Israel. And so that was the tabernacle's first real dwelling place during that conquest. It stayed in the place called Gilgal for those seven years. And after conquering the land, what happens is the Israelites head to Shiloh, and that's the place where they set up the tabernacle. And finally, the tabernacle isn't just running throughout the wilderness with the nation. It has a set spot. I mean, it's still not permanent like the temple. The tabernacle is still a tent, like I mentioned. But they're on the right track in terms of a place for God to dwell among them. Okay, also, I just want to quickly say, you may be wondering, how in the world did the tabernacle sit up and stay up? It's a tent. Goodness, tents fall over all the time. Well, here's the thing about a tent in Israel. There's really no rain in Israel. I mean, there's one season where it's a rainy season, but for the most part, we're not seeing a bunch of rain come towering down that would have just knocked over the structure. And it was a little bit more sturdy than just a tent like we might buy at a, at a store today. So that's a, uh, if you were just wondering, maybe that'll help ease your mind there. So on this idea of God dwelling among us, we may think that that's strange, right? Christians like me, I, I hear that term and I think almost exclusively about the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, that was the point where Christ came to dwell among men, right? But this idea of God dwelling among man is central to Judaism and not because of the virgin birth of Christ because they don't even believe in that. In fact, the Jews want the presence of God to be there with them. They want God to be dwelling among them and they believe that he always has because, you know, they're, well, they're God's chosen people. And personally, I, I almost feel it when I'm here in the land of Israel. It's just a totally different place. God's chosen people dwell here in this land that he gave to them. And God has rested in this land at various places, various times. Consider the tabernacle before the temple and then later the temple, a more permanent structure. If you read the scriptures carefully, you'll see that it's not this New Testament Christian idea to have God dwelling among man. New Testament Christian idea being the virgin birth of Christ. No, the Jews seek after God's presence and they've gone to great lengths to establish places where God can be there with them. And God's given them instructions as to how to build him resting places and to honor him and his presence. Just read the books of the law. Read the first five books of the Torah and you'll see what I'm getting at. The books of the law all are very specific and you may be confused by the specificity of it all. But really, it's so specific because God, the holy God, wanted to be there with his people. And he gave them such detailed directions in order to make that possible. Okay, so we've talked a, a lot about some of the various practices in Judaism and, and the tabernacle and all of that, but I want to talk about this place that we're going to, that we're on the bus to right now, called Shiloh. Now, there's a modern-day city, Shiloh, but there's also this place called Tel Shiloh. So we're going to actually go to Tel Shiloh, which is inside of the modern-day city of Shiloh. Okay, before we get too confused, let me talk about some, some of these words. So a Tel, I said Tel Shiloh, right? A Tel just means a mound or a heap. Basically, it's a place uh, where one group of people has lived there and then they move out or they're destroyed and then another group of people comes in and they live there. They build over that first group and therefore the city gets a little higher, right? So that process just repeats. 
Think about a tail with a lot of layers. We see some tails with 20 or 30 layers, and they can get really built up. Why in the world would someone choose to settle over an old city? That seems very strange, right? But there are a few good reasons. One, foundation stones were already in place, right? The city's foundation had been built. It was strong. It was in a good spot. They just needed to do some renovations. Water systems had already been developed, and they just needed a little bit of handiwork most times. That's crucial. Getting water to a city is very important. Obviously, these cities are much smaller. I mean, calling it a city, it's more like a little village, probably, but... Still, there were people living there, and it was a group of people, and they needed water. And so getting the water system and having it already been there and then just being able to do a little bit of handiwork to fix it up would have been most optimal. Already, uh, walls were already in place, and they just needed some fixing. Great fortification there. And also, you have to think about location. This location had been chosen for a good reason. I mean, it had to have been strategic. There had to have been fertile land around, right? So these, these people who originally settled there, the first layer of the tell, well, they chose it because they thought it was a good place. So it makes sense that other people would then follow in suit. It's also interesting to note that archaeologists can literally go to an ancient tell, like the one we're about to go to, and they can kind of take a slice out of the tell like it's a cake. I mean, you imagine, it's just right, a bunch of layers of uh, what were once people groups living there. Well, then they can take out that layer and they can... Uh, examine each individual layer and that's a really good way for them to be able to see how many people groups live there and the time periods by just counting the layers so keep the idea of a tell in mind as we continue it's going to be really foundational uh, both at tell shiloh and also uh, for some future visits here in the city or, or here in the land of israel so all that to say when we refer to tell shiloh we just mean the ancient city of shiloh that had many groups of people living there at various times, all building on the foundation of the previous group. That's the idea of Tel Shiloh. Of course, like I said, Shiloh does exist as a modern city today. People currently live there in the area around the Tel, but they're no longer living as the top layer of the Tel itself, right? There are just too many people. No one's continuing to build up on this old mound. And like I said, the tells were never really that large to begin with. People thousands of years ago, uh, there were a lot less people. So again, no one is really up there. They exist for our learning. These tells are helpful as we get a glimpse at what life would have looked like thousands of years ago. So as we pull up here to tell Shiloh, here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, let's go ahead on inside. I've already made our ticket reservation so we can go ahead and walk right on in. Once we get out of the ticket shop here, we come out and just see dirt. I mean, we, we see more things than dirt, but we see a lot of dirt. Just look around here. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Yeah. Well, it's a desert. Israel is a desert. I mentioned that. It's a desert with powdery sand. Gets in your eyes, gets in your shoes, and annoys you. Eh, it's part of being here, right? But there's a whole lot to see that I promise that will not be the worst of your issues. So, before we go any farther, we have to stop and discuss why Shiloh was such a prime location for people to settle in. So if you look around, you'll see that we're on a bit of a hill, right? And that's not just because we're at Tel Shiloh, like I already mentioned, we're gonna be a little bit built up, but rather Shiloh itself is on a hilltop. Okay, what's the advantage of that? Why did the first people group that settled here at Tel Shiloh settle here? Well, it's defensible. It's a great place to be when you're higher than everyone else, right? Also, it's quite centralized. When you think about the land of Israel, we're basically in the middle. So having a central defense area that can serve as a military command center, and the capital of Israel was extremely useful. And since this was the capital, and it's also where the tabernacle dwelt, 
all of Israel would come to Shiloh to offer sacrifices and join in festivals together. And here's the significance of that. All these people coming, you got a problem. Where are you going to lodge them? Well, Shiloh's in the hill country. Just look around and notice all the various hills and valleys surrounding this large mountain of sorts that we're on. Well, that would have been super useful because while all these people would come to Shiloh at once, there's no way the entire nation of Israel is going to fit up here. I mean, I, yes, I said Shiloh was large, and this would be a long tour, but it's not that big. The hills around us mean that people could go and camp on them, and then they could quickly walk over to tell Shiloh for the day's event. So, in fact, much pottery and other archaeological evidence has been found over on all of these hills surrounding us. If you just look around, and let's say you were to walk up, right, how about right, that hill right in front of us? If you just walked over there, you'd probably find a good amount of archaeological evidence that people had been out there. Okay, well, enough talk. I see the younger virtual voyagers are already on the move to the first stop at Shiloh, a recently built outdoor bowling experience. Adults, please don't get too excited here. It's literally just some one-pound balls and plastic pins that the kids can throw. But I guess that's our signal to head up the tell and toward our first stop, the place where Hannah prayed for her son Samuel. But we're out of time for today, so I guess that means that this tour will just have to resume next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue to explore ancient Shiloh. We're going to see the site of Hannah's prayer for a child, the supposed place where the tabernacle stood, and so much more. That's all coming up next on The Virtual Voyage. <laughs>